0: Stabbings in London, bombs in Canada, a silent media, and an important election. All the news you didn't know about on today's episode. This is Project Command. named by a power transfer. X minus 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. So yeah, we're going to be talking about some crazy crimes not really being covered in the media. And then the majority of our time today is going to be about an election that's happening on April the 9th. Before I do that, let me tell you to go to my website and check out my newest video series called Islam vs. Christianity. We're going to be looking at the beliefs, um, the theology... And the difference between the Islamic theology and the Christianity theology. So last week we looked at end times. And wow, it actually really freaked me out. And if you haven't checked that out, you really need to. If you don't know what Islam believes about the end times, but you are aware of the Christian teachings of end times, then you really need to check out this video because you are going to have your mind blown. Also, if you want to support this podcast or the website in general, you can head over to the website and check out the store because... Yeah, we have a store on our website now. Here's the really cool thing. You can support the website by shopping on the site. But as a bonus, anything you purchase on Amazon once you enter through these links will help support the website and make it easier to create more content. So head over, check out what we have, lauraleesiemens.com, click on store, and thanks for supporting the website. Okay, so this week's news, the Kingdom of Brunei is now stoning people to death for being gay, and everyone is shocked. But this shouldn't really surprise anyone since they are a Muslim majority country, and that's what Sharia law calls for. So all the people here in the West are freaking out, but maybe we should check out the history of Islam, and then after that, check out what it's like today to live in a majority Muslim country. Then, after that, check out what it's like to live in countries where Islam is growing and quickly becoming no longer a minority like London. So early morning uh, Wednesday, so yesterday, a 40-year-old man, he was opening his shop when, when he was attacked by this man with a machete. It was a busy street on uh, Northfield Road on Harrow. There were lots of people out and about that day, and the streets were full of people. They all witnessed this machete attack. This was after another attack on March 24th, where another man was attacked by a machete wielding man in the same area. It's actually the 33rd murder in London so far this year, and it's just the beginning of April. There's a video on Twitter of a Buddhist man trying to pray on the streets, and there's these tons of Muslims praying in the middle of the street where people are just walking around shopping, and a Buddhist man tries to also pray on the street, and he's immediately harassed by Muslim men and this really angry Muslim woman. Then another woman comes to try to defend the Buddhist, and she's punched in the head by a Muslim man and knocked unconscious, proving that diversity is obviously our strength. Here in Canada, we have our own growing numbers of stories. There's a story from Langara College in Vancouver So I'm going to read to you first how the media covered it. I'm going to read this article here from the CBC. A person entered a college campus and lit one or more fires before fleeing the scene, police say. It appears the suspect may have lit one or more fires before fleeing the scene, the statement read in part. Police say the suspect was quickly identified once officers arrived on the scene. He was arrested by Metro Vancouver Transit Police just after 4 p.m. and is now in custody. The college said the campus, which is on West 49th Avenue in Vancouver, will remain closed Tuesday after classes and exams were canceled on Monday. The Vancouver Police Department said its officers, along with BC Ambulance and Langara staff, helped firefighters get everyone out of the school. Officers then explored the buildings to look for other dangers. The search was expected to continue into the night. First responders are asking people to avoid West 49th Avenue from Ontario to Alberta Street. All right, so that's the article and all the information that they gave us. Now, does this seem kind of weird? I mean, they're closing off streets, canceling classes and exams for the next day if there was a little fire that somebody started. And actually, if you watch the video where they're interviewing people, they're saying things like, well, it probably was just, you know, a prank that went wrong. So I looked around a little bit more, and here's a little tiny bit of information the CBC left out. Like, for instance, the guy's name, which is Narcidin Absum Ali. So he's Muslim. And he planted three bombs in the school, and two of those bombs went off. So let's again read the headline of the article here. Here's the headline that they wrote. Person entered college campus and lit one or more fires before fleeing the scene. So let me fix that for you. The headline should go more like this. Muslim terrorist left three bombs at a Canadian university and two of them went off. Police are asking people to stay away from the area while they look for more bombs. But the CBC went out of their way to cover the story without actually telling us what happened. Something crazy is actually going on in BC because in January, there were four churches that were burned to the ground and these were all historic churches and the suspect was found. I've read every story I could find in this and I cannot find a name. All I can see is that A man has been arrested. That's it. Just that he's a man. With this growing Islamic population in the West, we also have at the same time, maybe coincidentally, a growing anti-Semitic population. In Poland, a newspaper this week ran with the headline, How to Spot a Jew?, and in the article, it was saying how to tell if someone is a Jew based on their looks or how they express themselves or names to look for, even their methods of operation. This anti Jew trend is growing in the West, and I can guarantee I will get stuff today from this podcast people are probably going to call me a big-nosed kike or claim I'm a secret Jew because I get messages like that whenever I do a pro-Israel or pro-Jew podcast. The sad part is how Christians are starting to fall for this anti-Jew narrative. If you want to know the history of Israel and you want a really easy book, I'm going to recommend a book called The Last Hour. It's written by a Jewish man who is a Christian, and he's a tour guide in Israel, and also a prophecy speaker. He has this really great understanding of prophecy because he reads it in the original language, and he also lives in the land where the prophecies are going to take place. So if you really, really want to know more about Israel, the past of it, the present of it, and the future of it, you've got to check out this book, and I'm going to put a link to that book below. All right. Now, I'm 41 years old. I'm just going to throw that out there. And in my lifetime, we have had a few world leaders that have really stood out. I'm going to name for you my top five world leaders for my lifetime. So number five is Trump, which everyone's gonna be mad about that because people who hate Trump would be like, what? He can't be your top five. And then all people who love Trump are like, what? Trump should be number one. But anyway, he's number five for me. Number four is Harper, the prime minister that we had here in Canada before we got Trudeau. Okay. Uh, Number three, Margaret Thatcher. If you don't know about Margaret Thatcher, wow, maybe I'll do a whole podcast on her because she is amazing. Awesome. Love her. Um, Number two, Ronald Reagan was my second most favorite world leader in my lifetime. And my number one that I believe is the best, most amazing world leader in my lifetime is Benjamin Netanyahu. Now, that might surprise people. A lot of people don't even know who he is. And then, like, what? Why are you putting that guy at the top of the list? It seems so weird. Okay, I'm going to explain to you why I'm putting Benjamin Netanyahu at the top of my list. First of all, you need to know that April 9th is the Israeli election. And if Benjamin Netanyahu wins, he will be the longest serving prime minister ever to serve in Israel. That's beating out the very first prime minister, who is David Ben Gurion. I'm not pronouncing that right. But anyway, before we look into this election and before we look into Benjamin Netanyahu, um, we need to talk a little bit about how elections work in Israel. First of all, it's a national holiday and it should be. Think about how amazing it is that Israel even has elections. Not only are they the only fair democracy in the Middle East, they were reborn after the Holocaust and have defended themselves from annihilation for the last 70 years. The very fact that they are a free country surviving in the middle of the hot mess that is the Middle East is in itself a miracle. So, yes, celebrate it. It's a national holiday and it's expected that everyone go and vote. So what do I mean by everyone? Well, everyone over the age of 18. Now, if you believe the racist, anti-Semitic propaganda, you might think only Jews get to vote. But Israel is not an apartheid state like those racist, anti-Semitic people want you to believe. Anyone over the age of 18 can vote. Christians, Muslims, atheists, Orthodox Jews, liberal Jews, men, women, anyone. Not only Can anyone vote? Anyone can run. It might surprise you to find out that Arab Muslims can and do run in the elections. All right, so it's a national holiday. Anyone over 18 can vote and there is 11,000 voting stations. Now, that might not seem like a big deal to you, but Israel is about the size of Vancouver Island. So 11,000 voting stations means there's basically one on every corner. Now, in the States, people vote for the president they want. Like, they actually vote for the president. In Canada, we vote for our representative, who then gets a seat in parliament, and the party with the most seats wins. Israel is a parliamentary system like Canada. However, it's really tiny. Again, Israel, about the size of Vancouver Island. Since it is so small, it's not divided up into representations like Canada is. So people actually vote for the party that they want. That means when people vote, they're not writing down a name of a person, but a name of a party. They don't actually write down the name of the party. But when they arrive at the polling stations, there's papers with the names of parties already written on them. They take the paper that has a party they want to vote for. They put the paper into an envelope and drop it into a box. It's very low tech and there's no hacking of the system. So then all the votes are counted. Any party that did not receive at least 3.25% of the votes is dropped off and doesn't count. The rest of the parties are counted out and then based on the proportion of votes they received, they're given seats in the government. The Israeli government is called the Canets. It actually goes way back to the biblical times when the Canets was made up of scribes, sages, and prophets. And it was, at that point, a religious ruling party, and that lasted until about 200 B.C. So that party wasn't elected, um, but it did have 120 seats, which is exactly the same amount of seats that we have in the present-day cassette. However, it's not a religious ruling party today, but it is an elected ruling party, and the seats are divided up amongst the winning parties, based, again, on the number of votes that they received. So in theory, the leader of the party with the most seats then becomes prime minister. However, there's a ton of parties and Israel is so small. So it's basically impossible for a party to receive more votes than the rest of the parties combined. So the leading party is picked based on parties joining a coalition. So one party might win, but three other parties join a coalition and then they would be the ruling party. So Benjamin Netanyahu is currently the prime minister and is running again. He is an incredible man, and I'm going to dive into his history. Israel was reborn as a nation in 1948. One year later, on October 21st, Benjamin was born in Tel Aviv. Benjamin spent his younger part of childhood in Jerusalem. He was loved by his teachers and students and was seen as a bright, friendly boy with really great potential. When Benjamin was eight years old, he moved to Pennsylvania with his family for two years and then back to Israel. And then when he was 15, he moved back to Pennsylvania again. He attended high school in the States and he graduated in 1967. Now, it's the law in Israel that every single citizen must join the army at age 18 and serve in the army for at least two years. Benjamin Netanyahu returned to Israel for the purpose of joining the army. He became part of the IDF, and he served for five years. Benjamin was an incredible soldier, and he moved up the ranks really quickly, and he ended up becoming part of the elite special force unit. Even in the special forces, he quickly seen as high quality and ended up becoming the team leader of his special force unit. Then, in May of 1972, a plane was flying from Brussels to Laud, And the Boeing 707 was hijacked by a Palestinian terrorist group called the Black September Organization. There were four terrorists, two men and two women. They were pretending to be married and were traveling as passengers. This, of course, was back in the day when you didn't go through metal detectors to get on a plane. The terrorists had guns, hand grenades, and also explosives on their belts. The terrorists demanded the plane land. After the plane landed the terrorists allowed all the Muslims to go free but they kept all the Jewish people as hostages. Benjamin and his crew dressed up as repairmen and and approached the plane and convinced the terrorists there was an emergency with the plane that needed to be fixed immediately. The attackers allowed them to come and fix the plane and it took two minutes for Benjamin and his crew to kill the two male, male terrorists and capture the female terrorists. One female Hostage was killed, and Benjamin was also shot in the shoulder. Then in 1972, Benjamin returned to the States and attended MIT and then went to Harvard. He was studying at Harvard when the Yom Kippur War started. Now, this was when Egypt and Syria joined to fight against Israel. Benjamin returned to fight in the Yom Kippur War, and he was sent with the special forces on a secret mission that 48 years later is still highly classified. Israel easily won the war, and Benjamin's highly classified secret mission probably had something to do with that. Benjamin returned to the States and was in the process of getting his doctorate in political science when another plane was taken hostage by terrorists. It was June 27th when Air France A300 was on its way from Tel Aviv to Paris, and it was hijacked by another Palestinian terrorist organization. Along for the ride were two German terrorists who also hated Jews. We're actually, just as a side note, we're going to do a study comparing Islamic um, ideology and Nazi ideology and their hatred for the Jews in a future podcast. So be listening for that. Anyway, Benjamin returned to Israel to work with the special forces to free the hostages. This time on his team was Yanikin Netanyahu, Benjamin's older brother. The rescue had complications. The plane had landed in Uganda and the Uganda government had been informed ahead of time about the hijacking and actually welcomed the hijackers into the country. Once again the Jewish people were separated from the non-Jewish people. All the non-Jewish people were put on a plane and sent to Paris. The Jews were kept as hostages. The IDF knew they would have to fight both Uganda soldiers and the Palestinian terrorists. The IDF spent a week planning the attack and then, at night, 100 of Israeli's best commandos attacked and in 90 minutes, the hostages were free. Every hijacker was killed. 45 Ugandan soldiers were killed. 11 planes were destroyed. Three hostages died and five commandos were wounded. One commando was killed. Yonatan. Benjamin had to return home and tell his parents... Their son had been killed. Benjamin returned to the States and began working in Boston. That's when he began working with Mitt Romney and became close friends with him. He began speaking out in the States about the Israeli issues. In 1978, Benjamin returned to Israel and started the Yannickin Netanyahu Anti-Terrorist Institute in memory of his brother. His goal was to end the constant terrorist attacks in Israel that were aimed at the Jewish people. During this time, he became very popular with the politicians, and people wanted to work with him. In 1984, Benjamin became the Israeli ambassador to the United Nations and moved to New York. At this time, he became good friends with a man named Fred Trump, who had a son named Donald. In 1988, Benjamin returned to Israel and entered the political arena. He was at this point 49 years old. He joined the Lucid Party. This is the conservative party in Israel. The party received enough votes to take seats in the cassette, and Benjamin was given the 12th seat. He was then appointed as the deputy to the foreign minister. Then in 1991, the Gulf War broke out. This was, of course, a very dangerous time for Israel. They were constantly attacked by missiles. Because Benjamin was so affluent in English and spoke with no accent at all, well, he had a hint of a Boston accent, he became an important voice for Israel during this time. He was the one sent to speak to the American news media when they wanted an Israeli government official to interview. Because of this, Benjamin became very well-known His name and his face became well known in the media. Then, in 1992, the Lucid Party made Benjamin the head of their party. Then, in 1996, the Prime Minister of Israel was killed by a man who was a nationalist. Because Benjamin Netanyahu was the main voice of calling for Israel to stand up and be a nation and stop bowing down to the Muslim countries surrounding them, he was actually blamed for the murder. The press said he didn't pull the trigger, but his lack of piety led to the tragedy. Following the assassination, an election was held and Benjamin officially ran for the prime minister's job. During the election campaign, there was a bunch of terrorist attacks in the form of suicide bombings. Yasser Arafat, the leader of the Palestinian liberal organization, was in talks to make peace with Israel. Benjamin did not trust him and was very vocal about that. Benjamin ran his campaign very differently than what was common in Israel. For starters, he hired his friend Arthur Finkelstein, who was an American who worked for the Republican Party. So Arthur Finkelstein came to Israel and ran his campaign. He ran a very American campaign, and everyone thought he was going to lose because of that. But he won, and he became the first prime minister of Israel that was born in the free and independent nation of Israel. His win came in an interesting way. The Labour Party actually had the most votes, but Benjamin made an agreement with the two Orthodox parties. Once he made a coalition, they outnumbered the Labour Party, giving Benjamin the job as Prime Minister. At this time, the Labour Party had been running Israel basically like a socialist country. They were really hurting financially, and things were not looking good. Benjamin, who had worked and studied with Republicans in the States, came to the job as a capitalist with a free market agenda. His goals were to bring peace to the people of Israel by stopping the terror attacks and bring economic freedom by changing the system of government into a capitalist, free market run country. The media was shocked. They had expected a man named Shimon Pries to win easily, and his defeat to this American sounding and American looking man was not what they expected. Like our media here, they were then and they are now very liberal and very pro-socialism. Benjamin Netanyahu got right to work, changing the Israeli system into a free market system. He shocked the government by selling government shares of banks. He also sold state-run companies to private citizens. He dropped taxes by half and then changed the laws surrounding the foreign exchange. This allowed Israeli citizens to invest in countries outside of Israel and allowed companies outside of Israel to invest in companies inside Israel. One of the first things Prime Minister Netanyahu did was change the Oslo Accord Agreement. This was a peace treaty, peace treaty with the Palestinians. The reason Benjamin Netanyahu was against it was the idea of stages. So according to the our agreement... Israel would give up all of their wishes, and then once Israel had done everything in the agreement, then Palestine would agree to do their side of the agreement. Benjamin Netanyahu would have none of that, and the world saw this as Israel being difficult and said that Benjamin Netanyahu was slowing down the peace agreement. He received so much negative press because of this. Then on November the 17th, 1998, Netanyahu and Yasser Arafat made a deal. Israel would keep the Golan Heights. They would not even discuss Jerusalem, and there would be no negotiations that had, or no preconditions that had to be met before the negotiations. He held a firm line. He said he would rather have war than give up what was rightfully Israel land. The left leaning in Israel were extremely upset. In just a short time, he had destroyed socialism. He changed the way Israel would deal with the Palestinians, And in their attempt to get rid of him, they accused him of affairs, they accused him of corruption. Twice, he was accused of money laundering. In 1998, he lost an election to the leader of the Labour Party, and Benjamin decided he would end his political career. He took a job in the political sector and fell back into life as a citizen. He spent time with his wife and his children. But in just two years, the new prime minister tried to ruin everything Benjamin Netanyahu had done. For starters, he went to Camp David to meet with Bill Clinton and Yasser Arafat, and that was this huge failure. He agreed to give away the southern part of Lebanon, and this was an area that Israel had been holding onto for 20 years, and Israel had taken it when Lebanon attacked Israel. Giving this land back did not bring peace, but instead riots broke out across Israel. Basically, in two years, the country was seeing everything go back to the way life was before Benjamin Netanyahu. An election was held in 2000, and Benjamin Netanyahu went back into politics. This time, he was not the head of the party, but the party did win, and Benjamin Netanyahu became the foreign minister. This time, the world knew who Benjamin Netanyahu was. He was a strong supporter of Israel, and he didn't back down. He had no desire to appease the anti-Israel, anti-Jew crowd, and that crowd was growing around the world. Benjamin Netanyahu came to Quebec to speak about the is- issues of these rally people. A group of racist, anti Jew bigots, made up mostly of Palestinian immigrants to Canada, protested his speech. The protests became violent. They broke windows trying to get into the area where the speech was going to be held. Benjamin Netanyahu was still in his hotel at the time and was taken out of Canada to be safe. The Prime Minister of Israel thought Benjamin Netanyahu was too much of a polarizing person and decided he should not be the foreign minister, so gave him the job of finance minister. This, of course, was something Benjamin Netanyahu was very happy to do, since it meant he could move Israel even more towards a free market capitalist country that he knew would make it successful. So he capped the government budget at 1%, cut all the taxes in half, both the private sale, private tax, and the company taxes. He changed the welfare system, saying if you're on welfare, you had to be currently in training or actively looking for work. If you want to stay home and collect a check for doing nothing, you're out of luck. He privatized everything as much as he possibly could, taking government control away from almost everything. What happened was what people now call the economic miracle. The unemployment fell drastically, and almost overnight, the living conditions of Israeli citizens increased. The media attacked Benjamin Netanyahu as someone who doesn't care about the most vulnerable. He's just an elitist, and they hated him. Then Israel made what I consider to be the biggest mistake in their history. They voted to withdraw from Gaza. They gave the land to the Palestinians and hoped this would make the Palestinians be peaceful and stop attacking them. Benjamin Netanyahu was so angry about this, he resigned that day, August the 7th. Israelis were forced to leave their home and those who refused were forcibly removed from their home by Israeli police. The dead were actually dug up and removed from burial grounds. It was the worst thing Israel has ever done to its citizens. The Palestinians moved into Gaza and into the homes and basically just destroyed them. They then used that land to attack Israel and the attacks only increased. The Gaza border became the hardest to defend and today is still the most difficult border to keep safe. Benjamin Netanyahu then ran to be leader of the party. He won... And became the leader once again. However, in the next election their party became the opposition party and Benjamin Netanyahu became the leader of the opposition. He was very vocal about the Gaza problem and his sadness for the citizens who had been forced out of their homes. February 20th 2009 another election. Benjamin Netanyahu's party won a lot of the votes and the other parties joined with him in a coalition making him the Prime Minister once again. At this point, Hillary Clinton was a U.S. Secretary of State, and she wanted the Palestinian government to have more of Israel land. She was pushing for this with this term, two-state solution. Benjamin Netanyahu would have none of that. He pushed back against both Hillary Clinton and President Obama. Benjamin Netanyahu said he would agree to two-state solution if Israel kept all of Jerusalem and the West Bank. There would be no removing Israeli citizens from their homes while he was prime minister. The Palestinians said this was a no-starter. Then America started making deals with Iran. Iran is a sworn enemy of Israel. They want to wipe it off the face of the earth. They just don't want Israelis removed from their homes. They want every single Jew dead. Obama was set to make this deal with Iran, and Benjamin Netanyahu did everything to stop it. He even left secretly in the middle of the night to take a plane to Russia and beg Putin to not sell military equipment to Iran. Benjamin Netanyahu stood up in the UN and demanded Iran be seen for what they are, an evil empire that holds its citizens hostage and vows to kill Jewish people. Then Benjamin Netanyahu Netanyahu went to America and stood before the house and spoke, telling them forcibly why they should not make a deal with Iran. For the leader of a tiny country like Israel to stand in the American House of Representatives and tell off the American president, the leader of the free world, that took, how do you say it, Hutzpah. During all of this, Benjamin Netanyahu allowed people to continue building homes on the West Bank. And in his eyes, this area is just part of Israel. The nation continued to flourish under Benjamin Netanyahu. He brought in new high-speed fiber optic internet and had the cables run all the way across Israel, bringing cheap internet access to the whole country. Under his free market, government companies and universities were developing so many new tech devices and cures for diseases. The agricultural industry flourished with new inventions that brought water out of the desert areas. Consumer prices dropped and more things were imported and exported from Israel. He changed the way the IDF runs and now the borders are protected. And although there are still terrorist attacks in Israel, there's not the large suicide bombings that were once an almost daily occurrence. He began to make peace with countries around the world. Even Egypt and Jordan made peace with him. In fact, both countries allowed Benjamin Netanyahu to send the IDF to attack and kill ISIS groups on their land. This would have been unheard of just a few years ago. Even Saudi Arabia has realized they should probably make peace with Israel. The country as it is today, a free market, capitalistic, peaceful country, is because of Benjamin Netanyahu. In the meantime, Israel is now ranked the eighth most powerful nation and second only to the White House in the most visited parliament by world leaders. And remember, it's the size of Vancouver Island. In 2015, Benjamin Netanyahu won the election again. His party had the most votes and he formed an alliance with four other parties to make the majority. It was actually a really close call, though, because he formed the alliance with only two hours to spare. In the last four years, Benjamin Netanyahu stepped up his game as far as being politically incorrect and proving he has no interest in trying to make the anti-Israel, anti-Jew crowd happy. In one speech, he said Adolf Hitler got his idea to kill the Jews from Haja Amin, Hal, Sunni, uh, a Muslim man. There's a lot of reasons why this is actually a pretty accurate thing to say. Hitler was pretty open about loving the Muslim religion and actually said he wished German was a Muslim country instead of a Christian country because it would be a lot easier to get the Muslims to kill all the Jews than to get the Christians to do it. Anyway, the politically correct world here in the West didn't like that very much and deemed Benjamin Netanyahu as a racist, of course. Then, in 2016, the UN voted to take all the land in the West Bank away from Israel. The United States, for the first time, refused to side with Israel, and the motion passed. Secretary John Kerry then made a public news conference, basically calling Benjamin Netanyahu a racist and Israel an apartheid state for Jewish people. But Donald Trump had already won the election and when he stepped in he changed all of that. He moved the embassy to Jerusalem and last week declared the Golan Heights officially part of Israel's sovereignty. He has not yet made the West Bank officially part of Israel's sovereignty but since Israel got the West Bank the same way they got the Golan Heights as in they won a war where the country was attacking them, it's clear the West Bank will be next on the list. In the meantime, the Gaza problem has only gotten worse. Thousands of people are now at the border every day. They fly kites with little bombs attached to them into Israel to start fires. They burn thousands of tires to create toxic smoke that will flow into Israel. And they pay hundreds of thousands of dollars to the families of any person who kills a Jew. With the election so close, of course, the media is attacking Benjamin Netanyahu as hard as possible. They're now accusing him of the same things they've accused him of before. So this is why I hope Benjamin Netanyahu wins the election on the 7th, and why I believe he is the greatest world leader in my lifetime. While Benjamin Netanyahu did do a lot of things that led Israel's rise in the world scene, it's also important to remember that God had his hand in this also, He had said, I will bless Israel and I will bless those who bless her. Throughout the Bible, it is Israel that has been the people God has had his hands on. We as Christian Gentiles are simply grafted into his program. It is grace that God opens his plan of salvation to the world. And it is grace that made that plan so simple for us. Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, became the world's Messiah. The one that Jewish people were waiting for became the Savior of the whole world. And he can be your Savior too. By believing that Jesus is God and he only can forgive your sins. And by asking him to forgive your sins and trusting in his death on the cross and in his resurrection, that we can have eternal life with him. In the next episode of Islam versus Christianity, we're going to be talking about the theology of heaven. So make sure you watch out for that. In the meantime, check out lauraleesiemens.com for more podcasts, blogs, videos, and now a store. See you next week.